Pray with me, please, Father. You are so good. You are so just. Unwilling to allow evil and sin to rule and reign in our lives. And so you sent Jesus to taste your justice so that we could have your mercy. He is our hope in life and death. He took what we deserved so that we could have what he earned in our place. May Christ be made much of now in the preaching of your word. May we leave this place this morning thankful, grateful, committed to following the one who lives his life on purpose for us. Thank you for Jesus. These are your people, ready and willing and waiting to hear your word. Speak to them, I pray, as the Spirit points them to the words by which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. Thank you for singing. I invite you to open your copies of the Scriptures, please, this morning to Mark chapter 12. The Gospel of Mark in chapter 12, if you don't have a Bible with you, there is a Bible near you in the hymnal rack there in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, that Bible is in the hymnal rack beneath you, page 1008 in the church Bible this morning. And as you're turning there, let me just, I'm going to say something right here at the outset that uh, our preaching professors in college and seminary told us never to say. And that is, this morning's text is very difficult. It is a difficult text. In fact, I would say this may be the most difficult parable to understand that Jesus ever told. Now, our professors would, would say to us, listen, you can't say that because immediately when you say that, everyone is going to tune you out. So are you still with me? Yeah. All right, very good. That's, we're, we're 30 seconds in, okay? So... You're doing well. But let me just say this. This is not a popular parable, but it may indeed be Jesus' most powerful parable. And so my aim this morning is, even in its difficulty, to present this in a clear way so that you can grasp the power of Jesus' story here and that you will walk out of this room this morning thinking higher thoughts of Christ and falling deeper in love with him. Because this parable makes it clear that here on Tuesday of the Passion Week, Jesus is fully engaged in that life of purpose that he is living for us. He knows what is waiting for him on Friday, three days away. He calls it with this parable that's all about killing Jesus. You pick up the text with me, please, in Mark chapter 12 and verse 1, where we read, And he began, that is, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower. And then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. 
And when the season came, that is, the season for the harvest, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, the owner sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another servant, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come and let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? And here Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, that is the Jewish religious leaders, were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so he left, so they left him and went away. This is the word of our God. Now there's something that I know is true of everyone in this room this morning. And then, in fact, there's, there's something that's been true of everyone in this room this morning since the very first time Charlotte's Web was read to you. You see, everyone in this room loves a good story. Right? Okay, so let, I just want to make sure that I have this right, all right? If you love a good story, raise your hand. We, we, okay, okay, good, good, good. We all love a good story. And by the way, those good stories stick with us for a lifetime. Just a few years ago, while Joanna and I were visiting our favorite vacation spot in Galena, Illinois, we were perusing the used book section of a local antique shop, and there was a book there that caught my eye, a children's book. And as I pulled this book off the shelf, the memories from third grade came flooding back because that's the year that I read Cowboy Sam and the Fair more than a dozen times. And then I lived in that book and I lived out that book. I would ride my bike through the neighborhood around the block lassoing horses as Cowboy Sam. That's what good stories do. Good stories invite us into the story, to live in that story. It's why we love superhero movies. It's why I'm a Batman fan. Now, I probably identify more closely with Spider-Man because I have been bitten by a black widow. But actually, Batman's my favorite. Even now, when I watch Batman, there's a part of me that finds myself sitting in the seat of the Batmobile. I'm the one staring down danger. I'm the one putting my life on the line in coming to the rescue. I am Batman. I am the hero. I anticipated my children saying, Amen. (laughs) But they did not. 
You know, we can read the Bible the same way. We can read the story of David and Goliath identifying with David. We can slay our giants. We can read the story of Moses identifying with Moses. We can stand strong in the face of the Pharaohs in our life. We can speak truth to power. But here's the thing. In the Bible, we aren't the hero of the story. In David and Goliath, we're the Israelite warriors who are standing off to the side, scared to death of Goliath. In Moses' story, we're the Israelites who are shaking in our sandals as we're standing on the shores of the Red Sea while Pharaoh and his armies are closing in. So yes, we're in those stories, but we aren't the Savior. We're the ones who need Jesus to be our Savior and rescue us from Goliath. We're the ones enslaved in Egypt until Jesus leads us to freedom by making a way through the Red Sea by way of His cross. You see, God is the hero of every story. And that's the big idea of this story that Jesus tells here in Mark chapter 12. God is the Savior in this story. He's the rescuer. He's the redeemer. He's the one who executes justice on behalf of his murdered son. And Jesus shows us that God is the hero in this story in two primary ways. First, Jesus shows us that God is good. He is merciful and patient and kind even when people shake their fist in his face. And second, this story shows us that God is just. He upholds truth and righteousness. He executes justice. And what's so intriguing about this story is that it highlights both the goodness of God and the justice of God in the death of the Son of God. And so let me just say this. If you're prone to questioning God's goodness or God's justice, this story is here to press those two truths deep into your heart this morning, which is why we've got to get the context of this story. Every good story is set within a context. From Romeo and Juliet to the gladiator to the princess bride. All of them set within a specific context. And Jesus' story here is no different. That's why verse 1 says that Jesus began to speak to them in parables. And so this story has a target audience. It's like this Cowboy Sam book. The author had a specific reader in mind when he wrote it. It was a story written for second and third grade boys living in rural America, while Jesus' story here is targeting the Jewish religious leaders. And we know that because those are the guys who've entered into a conversation with Jesus at the conclusion of Mark chapter 11. They've asked Jesus. They've cornered Jesus. They're attempting to trap Jesus so that they can crucify Jesus. And so they ask him, who gave you the right to do the things you're doing and say the things you're saying and claim the claims you're claiming? Because we're the religious leaders here. We're the ones with the credentials. And you have none 
of our credentials. Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you who gave me the authority to do what I do and say what I say. If you will tell me where John the Baptist came from, was he from God or was he from man? Was he the prophet of God or was he a false prophet from man? But we know the story. Remember it from a few weeks ago. They refused to answer Jesus. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to answer you. Now, Jesus is not being cold and callous here. He won't answer their, direction, their question directly because he isn't going to play their game or fall into their trap. Instead, he'll answer their question metaphorically and allegorically by telling them a story. And it will be clear by the end of the story that Jesus is from the Father. He's from God. And so Jesus is going to paint a word picture that makes that point here. You see, that's what a parable is. A parable is a word picture with a point. There's always a moral to the story. There's a big takeaway from the story. And if you've been around from the beginning of our study in the Gospel of Mark, you'll remember that back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells his disciples that parables are kind of like... How can I put this? Parables are kind of like inside jokes. How many of you in your family, you have at least one inside joke? Okay, you're thinking right now. So we have several inside jokes in our family. I'm not going to tell you what they are. <laughs> that would embarrass me and frustrate you because you wouldn't get them because you're not a part of the family. And that's the point with parables. Only those in the family are in the know. But what's unique about this parable is that even the enemies of Jesus, even those outside of God's family, will get the point he's making. That's why this text concludes with verse 12, which says, And the religious leaders perceived that Jesus told the parable against them. And that's why they walk away from him. Let me just pause here for a moment. I, I plead with you. Do not walk away from Jesus this morning. Unchanged. Unredeemed. Unsaved. These men so close to Jesus can reach out and touch Jesus. They're standing eye to eye with Jesus and yet they turn their backs on Jesus. So when you hear the words of Jesus this morning, do not turn away from him. Do not walk away from him. These guys, these religious leaders walk away from Jesus because they get that they play a part in the story of Jesus. It's a story about a vineyard owner who invests so much in transforming a barren plot of land into a lush, productive vineyard. He purchases the land. He makes it his own, and then he works the ground. He tears out the clumps of clay. He throws out the rocks, and then he plants the grapevines. But he isn't just going to plant the vineyard. He's going to protect it. And so notice, he builds a fence to keep the animals out. And then he builds a tower where he can watch over the vineyard and keep the thieves out. He digs a pit for the wine press where he can turn those grapes into wine. 
So this guy is all in on his vineyard. He's put his blood, his sweat, and his tears into this vineyard, kind of like some of you do with your garden. It's pristine. And you plant that thing. You measure the distance between your tomato plants. Your, your rows of peas and beans and corn are perfectly parallel and straight as an arrow. And after you've planted it and things begin to sprout, then you guard it like it's Fort Knox. You're out there daily shooting weeds with your herbicide gun. You sprinkle rabbit and squirrel repellent around the perimeter. Your garden is your prized possession, and everybody around you knows it because you tell them and you show them. That's this guy with this vineyard. I mean, you're thinking, okay, PK, but, but, but why does this guy invest all this time and effort and energy? It's just a vineyard. It's just vines and grapes. He can go to the local market and buy wine if he wants to. Is that the question you're asking? Because it's a question I need you to be asking so I can answer it, okay? I thought that was funny. Okay, maybe that's not funny. <laughs> because this is more than just a random guy planting a random vineyard. Back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7, we read this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And so the vineyard owner here is God himself. And the vineyard is his people Israel. They are his labor of love. They are his very heart. They are the apple of his eye. That's why he's so into this vineyard. But if you were to read the entire Isaiah 5 text, you would discover that back in that story, when it came time for the harvest, the fruit was sour. And so the owner destroyed the entire vineyard. And everybody who's listening to Jesus' story here would know that Old Testament Isaiah story from back there, especially if you're a religious leader. They know that that story back there is a condemnation of Israel in Isaiah's day, and it's an explanation for why God sent Israel into exile. But now, with these religious leaders here as the target audience, Jesus is going to take Isaiah's parable, and he's going to add a twist to it. Because after planting the vineyard, the owner goes away into another country. We don't know why he's going or where he's going. We just know that he's going to be gone for a while. But he still loves that vineyard. He's into that vineyard. He's invested so much in it. And so he leases it out to tenants. Now the tenants will care for the vines and tend the vines for four or five years because that's how long it takes grapevines to turn productive. And when the grape harvest finally comes, the owner will give the tenants a share of, of the harvest as payment for their work. And that sets the stage for the conflict in this story. 
Because every good story revolves around a conflict. In The Princess Bride, it's a conflict with Prince Humperdinck. In Batman, it's the Joker or Penguin or the Riddler. And that's true right here in Jesus' story because when the harvest comes, the tenants who are caring for the owner's vineyard, they begin scheming and conniving. They're saying to themselves, hey, has anyone seen Mr. Vineyard Owner lately like in the past four years? You know, um, no, we haven't seen hide nor hair of him. You know what that means? That means this is our big break. I mean, we've done all the work here. Without us, there wouldn't be any grape harvest. So, hey, 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 let's let's lay claim to this vineyard. Because, as they say, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And that's when suddenly, out of nowhere... One of the owner's servants shows up. He's here to collect the owner's portion of the grape harvest. But the tenants are not about to let that happen. And so they beat this servant and they send him away empty-handed. The servant comes limping home with two black eyes, a broken nose, and no grapes. What would you do if you were the owner? How would you respond? But here the owner is patient and kind and merciful. And so rather than sending in the feds to bring the hammer down, the owner sends another servant. And this servant, the tenants beat mercilessly. And so the owner sends a third servant. They don't beat this servant. They kill him. But still, the owner shows mercy. He sends servant after servant after servant, and each of them is greeted at the vineyard vineyard by being beaten or by being killed. The owner's great field has become the tenant's killing field. It's shocking. In the crowd, jaws are dropping, eyebrows are raising, parents are clasping their hands over their children's ears because this story has just gone from a G rating to an R rating. They're smashed in faces and busted up skulls. It's bloody and gory. It's a picture of what the religious leaders had done to God's prophets in the Old Testament. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, where God highlights the faith of his servants, the prophets, by saying they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. This is Israel's history of abusing God's servants, the prophets. I mean, the prophet Jeremiah was beaten repeatedly, thrown into a pit, and then stoned. Zechariah was chased by the Jews into the temple and stoned near the altar. Isaiah was placed inside a log and sawn in two. And yet God shows mercy. He is patient. He is long-suffering. Through all of that dark history. But as they say, 
If you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat that history. And that's what's happening here. Because it's against this bloody backdrop of death that the vineyard owner says to himself, I have no servants left to send. They've killed everyone. And so I will send my one and only son. Surely they will respect and listen to my beloved son. But when the tenants see the sun coming, they say to one another, here comes the one and only beloved son. He's the heir to this vineyard. And so if we kill him, we will inherit the vineyard. It will all be ours. And so when he arrives, they jump him and they beat him. They flog him, and then they drive nails into his hands and his feet, and they hang him on a tree until he's dead. You say, but Pastor Ken, hold on, hold on, hold on. The story doesn't say that. You're right. The story doesn't say that, but we know that's what happens with the son. And then they take that son's dead body and they throw it out of the vineyard. Out of sight, out of mind. The son's body is discarded and desecrated. And that's why Jesus dies outside the city gates of Jerusalem. It's such a ruthless, callous response to the abundance of mercy the vineyard owner has shown them. And that's when Jesus pulls back from the story and asks a question of the crowd. What will the vineyard owner do? Everybody knows the answer. And that's why when we read the parable in Matthew's gospel, everybody answers the question in unison with Jesus. The vineyard owner will put those wretches to a miserable death. They will die. Justice will be served by the Father. Listen, friends, please, listen. A good father will see to it that justice is served on behalf of his son. A good God must punish sin. God is merciful toward sinners, but He is not indifferent toward their sin. God is gracious toward sinners, but He is not permissive with their sin. It's what the old Johnny Cash song says. Well, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Please listen, I beg of you. Please. 
Let's just acknowledge together this morning that we would be right there with the crowd saying, yeah, Jesus, give these wicked tenants what they deserve. But remember, we don't write the story. Remember, we aren't the hero of the story. We aren't the judge and jury in the story. We're the ones who need rescuing and redeeming and saving. We're the lawbreakers who've killed Jesus with our own sin. So when we say, let them have it, Jesus, we're saying that about ourselves. We deserve to die because as Romans 3 verse 23 says, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's an eternally big deal because of what Romans 6.23 says, that the wages of our sin is death. Death is what we deserve. But the good news in this story is that death doesn't have to be the end of our story, like death is the end of these tenants' story, because death isn't the conclusion to Jesus' story. What the tenants don't know is that when the son dies, the father won't abandon the vineyard. The father instead will turn their evil upside down and bring eternal good from it. Death won't have the final say in the vineyard. Life will. And so the father places the vineyard in the care of new tenants. They will tend it. They will water it. They will guard it. They will care for it. The vines will continue to bear fruit because out of death, the father brings life. And that's why Jesus says to the crowd, listen, don't you remember? Don't you remember what the scriptures have said? And he's pointing these people back to Psalm 118. They would know this psalm because Psalm 118 is actually the same psalm they quoted from two days ago on Sunday when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey and they are proclaiming him king. They're placing their, they're, they're spreading their palm branches out before him and their cloaks before him and they're crying out to him about him from Psalm 118 saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus says, remember what else is in that psalm? Remember that that psalm says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Here's what that means. It means that through the rejection, through the rejection and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, God is going to do something marvelous. Note Jesus says that. He's going to build something eternal. With Jesus as the cornerstone, he's going to build a new household, a new forever family. And so I need to ask you, is your life built upon the cornerstone? Or have you rejected him like these tenants? Jesus is the cornerstone. That's why he came. To build a new forever family. Can I ask, are you a child in that family? You see, in the death of Jesus, he does so much more than what we're told in this story. In the death of Jesus, the Father takes guilty sinners who deserve the same judgment as these tenants. 
And he can redeem us and save us and free us from our sins because Jesus dies in our place. You see, the tenants thought they were having their way with the Son when all along through it, the Father would bring eternal good from the Son as He dies for our sins. Justice then is poured out on the Son so that mercy can be poured out on us. It's Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. As I read earlier, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. But here's the good news, that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption, the salvation, God coming to the rescue as the hero, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent into that killing field, putting Him forward as a propitiation. Now, we don't use that word a lot anymore. It simply means a sacrifice that satisfies. A sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God against our sins. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, his holiness, his justice. Because in his divine forbearance, his mercy, he had passed over former sins. Do you see both the severity of God and the goodness of God? The justice of God and the mercy of God because they intersect in the cross of the Son of God. God is so good. Have you trusted Him? By grace alone, through faith alone. And that's why Galatians 3 verse 26 says that we become the children of God. We are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Is that you? Will you receive the mercy God is offering you today because Jesus faced the justice of God on the cross in this day? Or will you choose to walk out of this room this morning a tenant and you will face the wrath of God, the justice of God, alone? Please, I beg of you. Trust in Jesus, turn to Jesus, believe on Jesus. And when you do, your story doesn't end with God coming after you to condemn you. Your story ends with God coming to you to redeem you. For the believer in Jesus, this story doesn't end in death, but in life. Because notice what Jesus says, this was the Lord's doing. It was his plan, perfectly executed, to bring eternal life out of his son's death. And so it's marvelous in our eyes. Are you still wowed by that? Are you still blown away by the gospel, by what Jesus has done for you? It's marvelous in our eyes. You know why? Because God has written us into the story through his son. God has taken the message of hope and forgiveness and grace and mercy 
a message that was primarily Israel's in the Old Testament to tell. And now God has given that message and fleshed out that message in us. We are his new family. We are the church of Jesus Christ, built on the cornerstone of Christ. We are God's forever family. We are the new tenants of that vineyard. And that's why the religious leaders walk away from Jesus. They get that this story is a judgment on their corrupt Jewish religious system. They get that their days are numbered. The Father is coming to rip it all away from them. And that's precisely what happens in 70 A.D. when the Romans swoop into Jerusalem and totally annihilate the temple. Not one stone is left on top of another. And the religious leaders here see the writing on the wall. That's why they're ready to crucify Jesus. It's all because they aren't the hero of the story. He is. And because he is. When you trust in him and know him and belong to him, there are three takeaways from this story for you. First, show mercy toward those whose hearts are hard toward Jesus. All of us in this room this morning have people in our lives with whom we rub shoulders with. Some of them we're very, very close to. Some of them live in our own home, are members of our own family. Some of them we work beside each and every day. Show mercy to them. Be patient with them. Like God is here. It's almost too much mercy, right? Time after time after time after time with these tenants until the father has no servants left in the house, only his son. And still he shows mercy. As followers of God, we are called to imitate the mercy of God. And that's hard because we live in a world where evil seems to be prevailing while God's people are suffering. And when that suffering gets personal, we're tempted to choose vengeance over mercy, anger over kindness, and hate over love. But listen, when we respond that way, we become like these tenants. We become like those who reject God, not those who follow God. So choose mercy. Because that's how God chose to treat you before you came to Jesus. And perhaps he has planned that hard-to-love neighbor or that mouthy co-worker or that openly rebellious child or family member. And perhaps he will use the mercy you show and the patience you demonstrate to bring them to faith in Jesus. That's why Romans 12 verse 14 calls us to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Do that this week. Be like your God as a child of the Father. And do that because secondly, you are taken with the love of Jesus. You're taken with the love of Jesus. The story Jesus tells here is the story of his own death. Before he ever walked toward that vineyard, before he ever came into this world, Jesus knew what had happened to every servant God had sent to his people, every prophet. And still Jesus came. 
Still, Jesus walked into the killing field with his eyes wide open, willingly, intentionally for us. So when you can't see his love or feel his love, you can know his love. It's written here in black and white. He tells his own story. First John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. What do you do with a Savior like this? Well, you're so taken with him that thirdly, you build your life on him. He's the cornerstone. Everything fits together with him and only with him. You build your life uh, on him. Everything about you. He's the foundation of your marriage and your family, your career and your finances, your hopes and your plans and your dreams. And as the cornerstone, Jesus is the anchor when the storms of life hit. And that's why if you place anyone or anything else in the position of cornerstone, your life begins to fall apart. And eventually it all come crashing down like that Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. But when you build your life on Christ and through Christ and for Christ, then everything you are and everything you do lives forever. It has eternal value because, as Jesus says here, it is the Lord's doing And he's the hero. Not just of this story, but of your story. He redeems us. He keeps us. He will complete the work he's begun in us. That's the story of our lives as followers of Jesus. It's all a story written by his grace and for his glory. It is the greatest story ever told. So as Jesus says, let it be marvelous. In our eyes. Amen. Father, may you take your word and not allow it to return void, but may it accomplish all that you have purposed in the hearts of every single person in this room. For those who walked into this room not believing Jesus, not trusting in him, I pray right now they would come to him. They would cry out in faith to him. Save me, a sinner. I believe. May no one, Lord, by your grace, may no one walk out of this room without Jesus. And for those of us who know Jesus, may we continue to be wowed by what we have in Jesus. And who we are because of Jesus. And may you then show your mercy to a world living in rebellion against you through us. Make us people of mercy as we trust you, as we build our lives on Jesus, the cornerstone, overwhelmed by the love of Jesus for his glory and in his name. Amen.